Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Today's episode is in collaboration with the Indigenous Policy Initiative. I'm your host, Megan Annable, and I'm joined to you by my colleagues, Ertiana Rokai and Armand Bachman. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussion more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge this land on which the University of Toronto operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Today, we are exploring the COVID-19 pandemic response by the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. At the outset of the pandemic, the Assembly formed the COVID-19 Pandemic Response Coordination Team and Centre in order to best face the coming pandemic. We felt their experience over the last year could provide important insight and examples for Indigenous policy throughout Canada. Joining us today are Grand Chief Arlen Dumas and Dr. Marcia Anderson. Chief Arlen Dumas was elected Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs in July 2017 in a historic first ballot win. Prior to being elected, he served his own community of the Matai Kalom Cree Nation as chief for over a decade. Grand Chief Dumas grew up in Pukatwagan, Manitoba, is fluent in Cree, and acts as a role model to young Indigenous men and women looking to reconnect with their own traditions, languages, and ceremonies. In his role as Grand Chief, he continues to be on the front lines of many grassroots movements and is an unwavering supporter of the families of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Dr. Marsha Anderson is Cree Anishinaabe and grew up in the north end of Winnipeg. She has family roots in Norway House Cree Nation and Peguis First Nation in Manitoba. She is a medical officer of health for the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority, a past president of the Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada, and past chair of the Pacific Region Indigenous Doctors Congress. Throughout her career, Dr. Anderson has advocated for a more robust curriculum in Indigenous health and changes in the admissions process. She was recognized for her efforts in 2011 with a National Aboriginal Achievement Award and in 2018 when she was named one of Canada's 100 Most Powerful Women by Women's Executive Network. Currently, she is one of the Indigenous medical experts who have led the Manitoba First Nations COVID-19 Pandemic Response Coordination Team. Thank you very much, Grand Chief Arlen Dumas and Dr. Marcia Anderson for joining us today. We would just like to discuss the Assembly of Manitoba Chief's experience with addressing the COVID-19 pandemic on Manitoba over the last year or so. Thank you, Dr. Anderson, for being here with us today. My first question was regarding the challenges that you have faced for the vaccination rollout thus far, and also what role has the federal and provincial governments played in the process? First of all, that I think it's important to recognize the strengths or the successes that we've had with the vaccination rollout. So one that's really important is going back to the last spring, a year ago, when we negotiated the information sharing agreement that allows us to have the best First Nation-specific data 
in, in the country and probably some of the best kind of indigenous led indigenous specific data internationally and that evidence and that data has been the core foundation of all of our public health response uh, and has really been a very empowering tool for us and so because we had that data we were able to further our collaborative relationships and bring that data to a collaborative vaccine table that both the feds and the province are at and then be really successful in our advocacy and planning for vaccine allocations and so I would celebrate the fact that very early on we had sufficient allocations to start vaccinating our elders on reserve and our traditional healers and knowledge keepers uh, both on and off reserve and then have this further allocation right now to allow us to do all First Nations adults 18 and up in all 63 communities and we continue with our urban planning as well. So I think it's really important for us to recognize the successes of that and overall we actually saw very good uptake with our first phase rollout amongst our elders and our knowledge keepers and that's really encouraging and also an important sign of community leadership when you have elders leading the way in those ways. Some of the challenges <laughs> I would say first of all are the, the biggest challenge is the logistical challenges. We need to do the planning community by community and take into account each community's individual context. So we have a higher proportion of remote and isolated communities than most other provinces. Communities where we're talking about multiple different transfer types with very fragile vaccines, right? So air transfers, over water transfers by winter roads or boats or helicopters, depending on the season. And even with planning for some of our approaches, like maybe wanting to do door-to-door -door vaccines in some communities where maybe there's an outbreak scenario going on, we need to think about the muddiness and the roughness of the roads and how we transport vaccines. So those are very different challenges than people who are able to plan like a large super site in an urban <laughs> center. So some of those logistic challenges, it is much harder to run a vaccine clinic, a mass vaccine rollout when a community is in an outbreak scenario. And though overall case numbers have been lower in Manitoba, we've continued to have some community outbreaks. And right now we have uh, rapid response teams in five different communities that are experiencing surges in rates. And we're drawing on the same type of surge supports to support both the public health needs in an outbreak, as well as surge supports for this very aggressive vaccine rollout plan. Some of the things that we've talked about before and that we're maybe starting to see are some lower uptake rates, particularly amongst younger people, and really trying to challenge the misinformation that's been out there around this vaccine and ensure we're providing valid, credible information from trusted messengers. We've been using that through multiple platforms, including our weekly Facebook Live sessions, other promo videos, as many opportunities as we can, supporting communities when they're using incentives or whatever local measures they have, such as community radio, to try to encourage uptake. But I think we have a narrow window of time to get needles into arms before the third wave hits in Manitoba. And the third wave, when it hits with these variants of concern that are more transmissible and causing more severe illness at younger ages, have the potential to be even more devastating than our second wave was for First Nations people in Manitoba. From your knowledge, could you maybe speak about what are the possible mitigation steps that could be taken or have been taken in the past to prevent the disproportionate impact of these pandemics that are occurring, especially for Indigenous communities in the future? 
When I compare what's happened during this pandemic to H1N1, I was fairly new in practice at that time. I'd only been in practice for about two years and didn't have the same relationships that I did going into this pandemic or the same experience. Uh, but also First Nations were at a different place and the relationships, the context between the federal and provincial government was also different. And I think a lot of the work that's been done over the last, well, decades, but really the last several years around transfer and greater First Nations leadership and First Nations health have been the biggest strengths of the response to COVID-19. So really early on, having the mandate from AMC to form the Manitoba First Nations Pandemic Response Coordination Team to provide that First Nations leadership in the public health response was really critical. And that's not something that we had during H1N1 in the same way. There were tripartite tables and an ethics and equity-based approach, but this kind of leadership where we're working collaboratively with our partners, where we have public health, clinical, operational expertise, we have the support of our political leadership, and I think we have pretty clear understandings of what happens at the, the provincial and planning level and what remains and needs to be done at the community level with community leadership. For example, we will discuss and I will negotiate with Dr. Rusin and the provincial legal drafters public health orders and what their impacts will be like in First Nation communities or you know travel testing which is something that we did implemented recently to have people tested for COVID-19 before they travel to First Nations communities or return to First Nations communities. Those are the kinds of things that we plan negotiate and implement at the provincial level. At the community level, community leadership, the chiefs and, and council health directors are still implementing their own community level measures like check stops and border security measures. We talked a bit about the community incentives for the vaccine rollout. They have pandemic teams that in, in some communities have really supplemented and work closely with public health around contact tracing. They have supports for their members, including in some communities and community isolation, food security supports, etc. So I think it's been a really good example of how that dual approach of community level autonomy and leadership and provincial advocacy planning and leadership really maximize the benefits for First Nation community members. At this point, I'd just like to ask, and I think either of you can answer this question or maybe add on add to each other. If you could just please walk us through the steps that the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs took at the onset of the pandemic just over a year ago. Sure, if I may, I, I just want to uh, expand a bit on, on Dr. Anderson's answers earlier, and just to, it's, it's significant and it's important. I want to acknowledge uh, the leadership of Manitoba, uh, that uh, there have been many, many things historically, the advocacy, the, the need to be innovative and do things differently, and, and many of these mechanisms, mechanisms and positions serve us well today. You know, the data collection, the ownership of our data, the ownership of our health files, all of those things are very important, and, and it's work that had been done decades ago and it and it serves us well today so it's important to acknowledge that and the, and I also want to commend the, the the chiefs for their advocacy and you know and, and I've, I've acknowledged this I'm very appreciative of Dr. Anderson Mel McKinnon there's there's a great uh, contingent of, of people and of resources that we're able to draw upon today aside from their personal conviction and, the, and the, their personal brilliance there was a lot of advocacy that helped open doors for people like myself and Dr. Anderson and these individuals because we're we're essentially operating in, in areas where we're, we're historically not welcome but we're here and we're, we're doing our thing and it's important to acknowledge that to your question the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs is the collective political advocacy organization First Nations organization in Manitoba the assembly guides 
what we what my work is done. I'm I'm guided by resolution by my executive or the Greater Assembly. The the, the Assembly is actually has all, all the authority. And I and I need to give you all this information just to keep everything in context. So what was happening at the time prior to me being chief, I was a health director for quite some time before I became chief. I was chief back home for a decade and then I became grand chief. So what was happening a year ago was was we were witnessing what was happening in the world, what was happening all over and uh Despite our efforts, our chiefs were sensitive to the issue of what was happening in Italy, what was happening in New York, what was happening all over, and had asked uh, ourselves as well as uh, many of our health leaders to start poking and, and asking questions. And there seemed to be this sense of people sitting on their hands. People didn't want to make decisions, no, but nobody wanted to move forward. And then there was a, a, a request to have an emergency executive meeting by the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. And it was at that meeting where the chiefs declared a state of emergency on behalf of the region. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Anderson alluded to a, a few things in history, H1N1. You know, people forget, yeah, we still have, and, and I'm sure perhaps in your families too, but we still have people in our communities who, who remember the Spanish flu. They were around. Uh, and then we have, you know, TV. We have, unfortunately, quite a, quite a history with pandemics. It was at that meeting that the chief's executive declared a state of emergency, and then they also mandated the pandemic response team. They also uh, requested that all of our best and brightest from all, all of our different partner organizations and associated organizations bring forth all their, their health people, their health leads. Uh, they appointed uh, uh, Mel McKinnon and, and Dr. Marsha Anderson to actually be the leads, and, to, and they were mandated to, to provide that function for us, and, and that's what helped facilitate many, many things. And because of that, that uh, solidarity, that unity, uh, and that political advocacy, uh, many, many amazing things have, have happened, you know, and we're, we're building upon those successes. So uh, I guess that's just sort of long-winded answer to your question. Our second question is, if you can maybe speak about why you believe such an early response was required by the Assembly of Man the Manitoba Chiefs, and also what were let's say, the specific decision-making processes that made your experience more unique to other communities, perhaps? Well, be because the Assembly is the primary um, advocacy organization in the province, you know, it, there's there's a, quite a long, extensive history. The Assembly, as it's called today, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, was first formed in 1988. But the Assembly has actually been around for over 50 years. It's one of the uh, premier uh, political advocacy uh, organizations in the country. So with that said, there's there's a lot of uh, refinement that has happened over the years with different initiatives. You know, as I alluded earlier, we, we advocated on having a ownership and say over many of our statistics. Historically, those things were used and there'd be no accountability back to our leadership or to our communities. Um, you know, the direction of, of, of how information is uh, provided to our, our community. So there's, there's a lot of these things that were put in place. There was a lot of different expertise that had been developed over time. You know, our, our partner organizations, Finisum, you know, some of our tribal councils who are doing amazing work. But, the, but the, it was the chiefs who wanted the assembly to be the conduit. And also, uh, unfortunately, some of the things that happened during H1N1 are really fresh in our minds. I was uh, a health director at that time and unfortunately some of our partners who we assume are, are wanting to work to our best interests their initial response to h1n1 was to send body bags to one of our northern isolated and remote, remote communities so with those types of experiences that are 
that are fresh in people's thoughts, we we knew that we needed to be proactive and to take uh, measures to to take control. Because we've always said we have the ability, we have the the know-how and the expertise, and we can look out for ourselves if uh, people would just get out of our way. Dr. Anderson, before uh, we have to let you go, I was just wondering if you could maybe speak to some of the, maybe the distinctions of urban versus rural Indigenous uh, healthcare, as well as also maybe the mental health impacts related to the pandemic. The first thing I would say is because we have really good data for urban First Nations people and for on-reserve First Nations people, what's really clear is that both groups, both populations are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Sometimes there is a mistaken belief that if you leave the reserve and move into a city that you're better off because you're closer to healthcare, there's more opportunity. And it's really important that people understand that the factors that put us at higher risk of COVID-19, which are related to processes of colonization and structural racism, are not bounded by reserve boundaries. And so First Nations people are impacted by those regardless of where they live. And so housing in urban areas, which is also overcrowded and, and, and inadequate, is a really good example of that and one of the key contributors. And so the contextual factors that lead to higher rates of COVID-19 are very similar when it comes to those social determinants of health. The main difference in the healthcare response will be the jurisdiction that's responsible. In the off-reserve area, all the services, public health, primary care, secondary care, tertiary care, are delivered through the regional health authorities as provincial responsibility and insured services. On reserve, there is a mix of responsibility that can be First Nations led and operated depending on the state of transfer of responsibilities. And I'm sure Grand Chief can describe that a bit more to build on this. In the remote and isolated communities where primary care is delivered through nursing stations, in the vast majority of situations, that's a federal responsibility. Province is still responsible for insured services, such as paying for physicians on itinerant basis in the nursing stations, and of course, for any hospital care that is required. It gets pretty complex in some ways when we're talking about on reserve and understanding who is responsible for what. And a lot of what we do as a pandemic response coordination team is have a really detailed understanding of who is the mandated organization for what. Ensure there's accountability for delivering those services in an equitable way to First Nations citizens. Thank you. A little follow-up to that question. I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little more about those about social determinants of health and the role of colonization and, and that, that that's unique circumstance of Canada, how that plays mm -hmm. into the Canadian Indigenous people. It's a big question, so I'll try to give the Coles notes version. When we look at the context of how First Nations people live today, a lot of the factors like education, housing, income, and being more likely to be in a low income group can be directly tied to previous or current policy decisions that were part of the stated government policy to absorb quote-unquote Indians into the body politic, right? And so the echoes of residential schools in terms of mental health impacts, which was what you, one of the things you'd mentioned about before, chronic diseases with some of the evolving understanding of the impact of chronic malnutrition on people's bodies, and then the long-standing underfunding of First Nations education directly impacts the educational opportunity and thus attainment of First Nations people. And education is an important determinant of health for pretty much every health outcome. So that would be one example. When we think about housing, 
these are all obviously tied together, but understanding property laws and who is allowed to own property and not allowed to own property and where property can be owned and how property on reserve is still governed under the laws of the Indian Act, how chronic housing shortages, the need for the housing to be funded by the federal government, but the, the like significant chronic underfunding and lack of escalation of funding for factors like housing over time deliberately put people into these inadequate overcrowded housing. In the urban environment, when we think about the concentration of people in lower income areas, which is all tied together in terms of how wealth is generated and the lack of opportunity for many generations to build family wealth that could be passed down, uh, which a lot of people count on in, you know, obtaining their higher education or having assistance with you know, a down payment for a home, etc. Like some of these things that young millennials now talk about in terms of not being able to afford to live have been the reality of First Nations people throughout Canadian history. And then when there is not adequate public housing or affordable housing options for lower income individuals, then First Nations people are going to disproportionately be in these overcrowded, inadequate housing scenarios. You know, my own great grandfather, I'll just quickly mention, my great grandfather um, made a choice to enfranchise in 1944, which meant he, quote unquote, voluntarily gave up his legal rights and identity as a First Nations person. And the reason he did that was because he wanted to both live off reserve, be able to buy property and have a job off reserve. And that was only possible at the time through enfranchisement. And so we're talking two generations ago, that was the opportunity, the requirement and the only opportunity for property ownership was for him to then give up his legal identity, which has had ripple effects through my family in terms of our language access. He spoke five Indigenous languages within a generation that was gone and we had only English speakers. Cultural knowledge uh, in terms of what he did or did not pass down and the variety of reasons why that was so. But then also even with reinstatement, how many generations in my family that does or does not go down and what that means in terms of access to post-secondary education funding for myself when I was going through university or for my children. And so those are, that's like one anecdotal example from my family of how those policy decisions and legislations that were part of the, the colonial project impact First Nations people then and now. Grand Chief Dumas, do you have anything you would like to add to that? I, I really appreciate that, Dr. Anderson. I think I think that's uh, I think it's a very um, transparent and honest response, you know, and, and for people to have an appreciation, you know, as as Armin will know, I, I sort of shared some things with uh, with uh, some of his peers a, a few weeks back, and one simple example, you know, just so you know, I really appreciate the the actual details that Dr. Anderson shares, uh, and the, and those are universal. There's many 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 other compounding issues. But fundamentally, in 1980, uh, my home community of Pukatawagan, remote and isolated community, is 850 kilometers north uh, west of, of Winnipeg. It's a remote and isolated community. And I remember being a, a child in the 80s and, and the community celebrating that we had a thousand people in our band membership. Huge. In 1982, the government changes and there's this big decree that there will be no more new Indian money, they called it, right? No more Indian money. There's a, there's a cap. It's forever frozen. 
So other than slightly inflationary, not even national inflationary, arbitrary, systemically racist inflationary increases in the 90s to try and deflect attention from, from the issue of chronic underfunding in, what's the year, 2021, the population of my home community is over 4,000 people, and we still have the same amount of money we had in 1981, right? Has nothing to do with the people or or decisions were made. And then these systemically racist policies have been instituted and remain to this day. So when, when Dr. Anderson talks about chronic housing shortages and chronic underfunding, that's exactly what it is. And unfortunately, uh, everyone chooses to believe the rhetoric of the of, of the government and, and of these people who, who come with uninformed positions. You know, there was a, you know, I was I was a chief during the Harper years. I couldn't I, I didn't understand why, you know, there, there was this constant slinging of mud towards our leadership when really it's, it's not our fault that, you know, we didn't ask for chronic underfunding. We didn't want a housing shortage. We didn't want our, our populations to be. Uh, adversely affected by health issues you know like these are these are uh, systemic issues thank you very much for that answer i guess could you um for for some of our more since this is an ontario based uh show could you just provide some more background information on the assembly of manitoba chiefs for ontario listeners sure uh, i just wanted to touch on something you know you asked dr anderson what what were the obstacles for her right so she she talked about some of the logistic issues, some of the some of the uh, institutional issues. However, from my lens, the biggest obstacle is is provincial and federal in- interference. It's always the biggest issue, right? A, a service is supposed to be a service. The resources are allocated because of the uh, the the political jockeying of, of provincial and federal governments. It, it leaves it leaves our, our communities vulnerable. And it was because of the advocacy and the proactive steps that our leadership had taken that helped push down some of those some of those obstacles. So much so that really, really unique things are happening. Uh, my, you know, there's there's bumps on the road, but you actually truly need First Nations expertise. You need First Nations acumen. You need First Nations people helping decide how to deal with the pandemic and how to move forward and how to do vaccines. Had we left it to the status quo and allowed for the provincial and federal jockeying to happen, we wouldn't have a pandemic response team. We wouldn't have had the results we've had with with the vaccine rollout. We wouldn't be where we are today. Uh, So in my opinion, that's sort of the biggest obstacle. And it's unfortunate where we've had to bring our our federal and provincial partners screaming to the table because they realized that without us, they they were gonna be abject failures. That, that's sort of my, my main obstacle. And I'm sure, you know, other members of our pandemic response team will have certain aspects that they feel are, are more significant. So back to your question, Armin, uh, the assembly, again, uh, what it's known as today is, is the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. It was uh, started in 1988. It's representative of our in, entire region. And it's a place of, of, uh, uh, political uh, advocacy and, and helping all of our, our, our member communities in, in the whole province of Manitoba. But we do actually have some of our members that are uh, in Saskatchewan and bordering in Ontario. Great. Thank you so much. So uh, just one last question. I was just wondering if you could maybe more deeply describe the coordination efforts with the government of Manitoba and the federal government with the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs and comment on your thoughts on how effective that coordination has been or 
how their work has been? Well, I, I again, I want to acknowledge my leaders, my leadership, the chiefs of our communities, and for the proactive steps that they've taken. I want to, you know, acknowledge the uh, the assembly itself for the uh, credibility and the influence that that it has, and that because of those uh, relationships, you know, the the skill set of our of our our leaders, we have been very significant and very influential. Again, you know, all the all these pieces play a role. Uh, we I believe that in the health field, the assembly has shown over decades uh, the skill set that we had. Whether it's with our partner organizations, Finissa, uh, some of the different initiatives that we worked with our tribal councils to do different things, whether it's diabetes training or things of that sort, but we have shown that we are very capable and able, and we have the the expertise to to do these things. It's a culmination of all those things that have allowed for us to to be legitimate and and credible advocates and uh, and I don't mean this in a conceited way, but we're a, we're a force to reckon with. You know, we're we don't we're we're actually coming to the table prepared. We have our assets and our knowledge available, and 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 it's it's uh, in an effort to to better everyone. So if you take a look at the efforts that we're able to do because of our acumen and our expertise, and, and again, I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but I believe we were the first region in the country to acquire vaccine into the city of Winnipeg. So for those of you in Ontario, Winnipeg is our main, main, main city in the province. It's in, in, in the south, about a couple hours away from the, uh, the southern border. Then we have 63 First Nations that are strewn about the province, all the way, almost all the way up to uh, uh, Nunavut. We have, we, uh, I mean, Boche, our, our, our furthest north. It's almost a thousand kilometers north of Winnipeg. So just a massive area. But we were able to get vaccine from the city of Winnipeg and into every single one of our communities in two weeks. Right. In two weeks, we were able to do that. We were able to mobilize, move, and, and get it, get get the vaccine in, into those into those areas. And that was through our our expertise and, and our ability to do things. So, unfortunately, again, I, I allude to the the provincial posturing and whatnot, and the, some of the ridiculous things that some of our, uh, our provincial leaders say. But really, what that actually showed everybody else is that Manitoba is ready. Manitoba is ready to go. If they can do this, then what can we do? So when more vaccine is available, where is it going to go first? It's going to go where, where we're able to be um, meaningful participants and facilitate you know, the vaccine rollout. Because when we do well, everyone does well. So when First Nations in Manitoba are doing well, everyone does well. And I'm just just a, a quick aside. I, I should have mentioned this earlier because because as Grand Chief, you, you sort of get a different lens sometimes. And individually, we just focus on 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 what we're doing. But as Grand Chief, I appreciate that sometimes I I get a, a view of other things. So unprecedented because of our our, our leadership in Manitoba and the the and like Dr. Anderson said, the willingness of people wanting to collaborate and work with us in a, in a meaningful way because we earned that and we and we deserve it. When the chiefs declared a state of emergency, and 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 I was again, I, I was a chief for ten years. Uh, before that, I was on council for for six years, and I was the health director for five years. So I'm very uh, tuned to working with bureaucracy and how slow things go and how frustrating it can be and and whatnot. But when the chiefs declared a state of emergency, unprecedented, 
They declared a state of emergency and they started enacting their emergency response plans and developing their pandemic response plans. Never before financial resources went from Ottawa into our First Nations bank accounts in four days. Never before. I can tell you that has never happened ever before. But be, and the reason why that was it was because of our credibility, because of our abilities and credibility and our acumen to, to do things and, and our desire to want to look out for our own interests. And I'm, I'm grateful for the federal government at the time because they were willing partners and like, all right, here, here we go. Unfortunately, uh, the province supported by actually acknowledging our efforts and they too declared a state of emergency for the province three days later. They didn't participate financially for quite some time until they received funding from the federal government. From that action of our chiefs, what ended up happening was that there was an additional, I believe, and I'd have, I'm sorry, I'd have to check the numbers, but it was quite significant. Shortly after that, there was about $26 billion that came into the region to help look after everybody else. You know, and, and Manitobans may not appreciate that and, and other people may not appreciate that, but it was actually, in my opinion, the decisive steps of our leadership that declared that state of emergency that, that made people really focus on, on where, where we needed direct resources to, to uh, provide the maximum protection for everybody. And uh, shortly after that, we, we all celebrated in the region here that we were able to flatten the curve and protect ourselves, right? You know, I just, I just wanted to share that as well. Just wondering if you have any ideas about lessons that can be learned and applied to other policy areas in Canada, whether it be the chronic, chronic underfunding that you mentioned or housing um, or education disparities, all sorts of policy areas that the leadership of Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs and the COVID-19 pandemic response team and that experience. I'm just wondering if you, th how you think lessons learned from that can be applied to other policy areas in Canada. I think people really need to review these policies and they, and they need to change them. They need, you know, enough time has passed. I think uh, paternalism and, and all that stuff needs to end. It's, it's ridiculous. I think that uh, in many cases, First Nations have led the way in, in many aspects. And we've actually proven that we're more than capable to look after ourselves. Uh, however, we need our allies to, to do their part. We need the media to actually start providing the facts and actually uh, telling the full story tale again you know no not to not to vent but it, but it's significant and it's important and people have to have an appreciation I was a chief during the Harper years and I was vilified leadership were vilified they were they were they were disrespected by the media by by the governments but nobody ever actually checked the facts right nobody actually actually went and say okay all these all these rumors and all these and what what are what are the reality oh Every single cent that goes into a First Nation is actually reported on six times. That's actually accounted and, and reported on six times. Every single cent that's provided into a First Nation is actually guided and earmarked in a specific way. You know, you had all these huge expenses of, of funding. You know, we, we demand every First Nation post their, their audits online. They already do. You know, it's actually a requirement of the, of, of the Department of Indian Affairs. Why do you need it? whole new legislation to do that. If people bothered to actually check the facts, they would have known. There was this whole huge uh, thing about, about uh, wanting to know what First Nations leaders were paid and what was the finding that the average First Nations leader in the country is paid $35,000 a year, you know, to play the role of a CEO, right? What, what does the average Canadian CEO make? 
certainly not what our leaders get paid. But unfortunately, it's it was during that time it was it was the uh, First Nations leadership that was besmirched and disrespected, and uh, it really drew attention away from what the reality is. The reality is is that there's systemic racism. Uh, that there that that uh, unfortunately, if if we truly want to change how we move forward together, those things need to change. Uh, get rid of those policies. Policies are not legislation. Policies are not law. So change the policy, break the policy. If it's actually for for the betterment of people, I'll give you I'll give you a, I'll give you an example. Right when I was chief. Uh, I want to acknowledge everyone who would help me. Fortunately, I had a good team, but we we were in a a, a position to self finance uh, some homes to build homes, and we did. We we went out, we secured the funding, we we did all of those things. But because I'm an unconventional leader and I don't take no for an answer for in the in the region, I went to Ottawa and said, "Hey, look, this is what this says, and I can do this this way." So I want to do it. So I actually got uh, guarantees and all those things to, to do the initiative. Tickety boo, we move, we move on. We're going to build uh, we're going to build 50, 50 units in total. That that equates to about two hundred and fifty to three hundred people having homes, places to live because of overcrowding and whatnot. But you know, it was still a positive thing. But because I didn't follow the proper process and the policy and overstep people. There was actually bureaucrat in the region who took it personally and actually held on to my proposal for three months. And it wasn't until I had heard as leader that the project hadn't started. And then when we went to go find out, even though I had a letter from the, 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 the minister, even though I had a letter from the region and all the financing and everything ready, that individual decided that because I did not follow the process that they were going to punish my community for that. So 300 people weren't able to move into their homes in the time when they should have, because one person got their nose out of joint. And unfortunately uh, that happens. That happens in in many cases. People need to stop being Indian agents. Uh, And again, for your listeners and everybody listening, the Indian agent historically was Pointed by the government, and they were essentially in complete control of what a First Nation what could or couldn't do, whether they traveled, whether they could leave their reserve boundaries. But that mentality prevails today. I'll be sitting in a room, and people will start speaking in a way where they're actually being condescending. They don't know it because they're just doing what they've been doing and trained to do for throughout their time in bureaucracy, but they're being Indian agents. We don't need Indian agents anymore. We can look out for ourselves. We've proven it. We have we have the track record. People just need to let us do what they're doing. So change those policies, get rid of them. And we can do that collectively. It's just people need to let us look out for ourselves. Great. Thank you very much. The chronic underfunding and just how perpetual that's been an issue. You know, you mentioned it's been since the early 80s, since this funding level has been maintained and there's been no real changes to that. And this paternalistic attitude has persisted. So maybe you could speak more to that and how this chronic underfunding can maybe be mitigated or addressed in the future. So I I guess just my observations on that, and I'll use this example, you know, when I last time we spoke, Armin, I used the example of being a uh, post-secondary student. In 1982, uh, the funding was frozen by the government of the day. Mind you, there was a bunch of different things that were were starting to happen, different initiatives, uh, wanting to have more 
control and more direction on on many of the uh, services and, and uh, programs that we have, you know, education being one of them. You had local control, it was called local control. My community was actually the first in the country, I believe, to actually achieve local control. Acknowledge my old chief, his name was Pascal Bigity. We had a thousand people, right? I started going through the educational system and I was fortunate to, to go through this system when I did, because at the time there were resources to help me. When I take a look at my cohort, my peer group, all of us that went through the system at that time, the investment that, that we were fortunate enough to receive at the time, we're all, we're all, you know, we're all successful. Many of us were successful post-secondary institutions. We have teachers, we have lawyers, we have doctor, we have, you know, nurses, we have uh, many, many different people. My, my, uh, one of my friends back home, my, my, uh, my cousin, he's actually a accredited certified uh, public works operator. You know, my best friend was a uh, chief of police. So my point is the investment that came to our group, it paid, it paid seven times. But unfortunately, as we were finishing, the, our population starts to expand. So by the time I'm actually finished university, the population of my community has tripled and the funding hasn't increased. So when I went home, I was so excited because uh, I, I, I'm so appreciative of education. I was so appreciative of our education department. So they asked me, hey, would you like to be on our post-secondary selection committee? And I was like, absolutely. I wanted to pay back. I wanted to, I wanted to help out. I wanted to be an active participant. Absolutely. So they're like, okay, this is, this is, our, our, this is how we do it back home. You have, you have 10 new graduates. They're guaranteed. That's, that's the, uh, the policy of education. Sounds reasonable. I was guaranteed when I graduated. So, and I went off to school. We have 10 people who are already in school. So they have to get sponsored. They're in good standing, all this. Oh, great. Yeah, perfect. Another, another people. And then they bring out this box of applications, 250 to, you know, 300 applications. I'm like, okay, you can pick two. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to be part of this selection now. Like, how do you Oh my goodness, right? Like, how do you how do you do that then? You know, and and the, and the issue is chronic underfunding. You haven't had an increase in your funding since 1982, and now you have a, this explosion of your population. You're unable to provide post secondary resources to to your community members. But see, then what happens is that those individuals are going to phone the government of Canada and say, hey. Why am I not being provided sponsorship to school? The government of Canada is going to say, you need to go talk to your chief and council because they're responsible for education, which is only a half truth. And then who gets blamed? It'll be chief and council. The government of Canada goes, well, you know what? We chronically underfunded your community since 1982. And, and we, we, we haven't provided any additional resources based upon your population increase. So you guys go and figure it out yourselves. Because our policy says this, right? So that 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 sort of uh, sort of the issue with with some of these systemic things that that impact our communities. How does the role of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada and the calls to action kind of play in with what you just spoke about? You know, I appreciate that question, and we we need to uh, remind each other of our respective responsibilities. Uh, mind you, I'm, I, you know, as a former chief and, and as grand chief, you know, my, my target is always the federal and provincial governments. But I think we all play a part. 
right? We all we also have to try and encourage that accountability in, in different respects, and the calls of action specify that. You know, what can we do? What can what can associations do? What can affiliated organizations do to sort of elevate the issue and try and create that accountability? And I don't mean that in like simply in an accounting term. You know, I, I mean that in in a, in a more of a wholesome way. How do we how do we do what's right for everybody? Because I, because I see it, you know, I, I see when, when our citizens, when our First Nations people do well, everyone around us does well, you know, and, and I think that's very significant. So what can we do? How, how, do we, how do we assist one another? So, you know, to that, to that question, Megan, I, I think it's important that we try and keep the, those issues top of mind and, and figure out how we collectively move forward. Thank you. And thank you also, I want to say, just for sharing your experiences with us today. Once again, that was Grand Chief Arlen Dumas and Dr. Marsha Anderson from the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the COVID-19 pandemic response by the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. Today's show is produced by myself, Ertiana, and Armand. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you have missed any part of the show, be sure to check out our podcast of all our episodes on the website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show and want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussion out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.